Monday, November 2nd, 2020, and you are listening to Living with Liberty. I'm Ryan, your host. Today I'll talk about conservatives being the real progressives, talk a little bit about the election tomorrow, and we'll leave you with something positive to start your work week. One thing that has always bothered me is the left's claim to progressivism. To the naked eye and rational thought, it would seem they are anything but progressive. I view their policies, actions, and rhetoric as regressive. I think we've seen tons of that here in 2020, from the Chaz up in Seattle to the, seems like, constant riots in Portland, 100-plus days, to all the other various uh, unrest that we've seen in our, our large cities that really wouldn't get a second thought had it not been an election year and and tensions stirred up. If you're on the fence about this, about conservatives being the progressives, I will show you why conservatives are just that. Before we dive into the discussion, I'm going to start with some definitions of progressive. Uh, these will be important to keep in mind as we move through our discussion. I have a few definitions here from Merriam-Webster, and surprisingly not one is liberal activists. Given that they've changed definitions of a few words this year and some highly publicized, it's a bit of a surprise. Uh, definition number one, of, relating to, or characterized by progress. Two, making use of or interested in new ideas, findings, or opportunities. Three, moving forward or onward, advancing. Four, one believing in moderate political change and especially social improvement by government action. This one I agree with the front half, the moderate political change, but I believe government should have a limited role in social improvement. To me, these sorts of things are best left to non-government organizations, community leaders, uh, community uh, organizations that are better equipped to deal with the human condition. Government just ends up wasting time and resources and gets little to no return on, on that investment. So let's look at the first progressive conservative, Abraham Lincoln. I wouldn't label Lincoln as progressive in his early adult years. He came from a family that viewed the practice of slavery as immoral, which did shape his original viewpoint. He was at first anti-slavery, but not an abolitionist. It was an idea and practice not compatible with his worldview, you know, going back to his family's view on, on the practice of slavery. By the time the 1840s hit, Lincoln was a lawyer at this time. He had adopted a, the very, I call the very Republican view of, if we ignore or confine something, it'll go away. He viewed slavery as a dying institution that, if limited to where it already was in place, it would collapse in on itself. Lincoln, the lawyer, even went as far as to believe it was constitutionally protected by the 13th Amendment. Now at this, you might be saying, Ryan, this doesn't sound very progressive to me. I would say and agree with you, you're right. Uh, 
the thinking here from Lincoln isn't very progressive. He viewed slavery as an institution that was unjust and immoral, but really wasn't on the train of um, abolition at this point. There is a turning point in Lincoln's story, however. It's when we reach the Emancipation Proclamation. Up until this point, Lincoln had viewed the Civil War as a struggle to keep the Union together, offering the South compensated emancipation. This policy called for fair compensation to the states for economic losses for emancipating the slaves. Not surprisingly, none of the states complied with this, and I believe it was at this point the light bulb actually went on for Lincoln that this struggle, the Civil War, really was about slavery as an institution, and abolishing this unjust and immoral practice became the priority leading up to the Emancipation Proclamation. I think the feeling here is the South was not going to give up their economic way of life. They had everything built on the backs of free labor. They had this ingrained institution of slavery and the Civil War became the fight for that in their minds, whereas Lincoln viewed it as just trying to keep the Union together. The Emancipation Proclamation opened up the path for Black men to join the Union Army and the opportunity for citizenship for all future generations of African Americans. I believe after the Civil War, it also opened up the ability for African Americans to be elected officials in our government. We see in 1870, the Republicans uh, it voted in the first black representative to the House of Representatives and the first black senator. It took 65 years for the Democrats to vote in the first black House of Representatives uh, individual and another almost, or almost 100 years before they voted in the first black senator. To me, this is, you know, moving forward, it was almost immediate after the Civil War that uh, the Republicans, the conservatives, started moving forward and, and moving and advancing society. Let's fast forward 115 years or so from, call it from uh, end of the Civil War to Ronald Reagan. During his campaign in 1980, he pledged to uh, nominate the first woman to the Supreme Court. He fulfilled this pledge in 1981 when he named Sandra Day O'Connor to the court. Miss Day O'Connor had the backing of Barry Goldwater and Justice William Rehnquist. A su supremely qualified jurist, she was confirmed 99 to 0. Obviously, things have changed in terms of how the court is viewed today. Uh, today, I, I think it's viewed more as that super legislature. It's, it's that parent you go to to get a yes when the other one tells you no. Sandra Day O'Connor also advanced the idea of women in law as a career. As over her 25 years on the Supreme Court, there was a 12% increase in women law students. 36% were uh, students when she was seated on the court in 1981. And when she retired in 20, 2006, 48% uh, of law students were women. I would anticipate Amy Coney Barrett having a similar effect over the course of her Supreme Court career, 
but more so in terms of women being moms and still choosing a career and working at a career and advancing their career. I would expect to see that as we go along, Amy Coney Barrett is that model for uh, both a career woman and motherhood. Rounding out our discussion is our current president, Donald Trump. Whatever your viewpoint of his personality is, it's hard to argue that he has not been progressive in his policies, unless you just choose to ignore the facts and figures of, of his presidency. He had the best economy pre-COVID, particularly for Black and Hispanic workers who have seen historically low unemployment up until that point. He's engaged dictators around the world that have essentially been shunned in U.S. foreign policy for decades. North Korea is an example. First president to meet with the leader, Kim Jong-un. First president to set foot in North Korea. He's gone on the record as saying he'd like to end the sanctions and that he'd like to host Kim Jong-un at the White House. Now, to be fair, there hasn't been much movement since that visit in terms of what the relationship is. But I don't think it ever was going to normalize overnight either. I think Trump alluded to uh, after that meeting that we were playing the long game with North Korea, that there's still some long-held ideological issues that need to be resolved. I think one of those is North Korea, North Korea dictating uh, what the terms are going to be. Trump said that you must denuclearize first before we will lift sanctions. Kim Jong-un came in saying lift sanctions and then we'll denuclearize. I think Trump's right in that. You, North Korea, have to prove to us that you're going to do what it takes in order for us to lift, lift the sanctions. Even through this, though, I think the hard part is done in terms of opening up contact. I think there's a start of a relationship there. And over time, it's hopefully going to continue and, and we'll see peace on the Korean Peninsula. I think moving forward is where this kind of falls into play in terms of our definitions. Past administrations would have not engaged uh, at all or caved to the demands of the dictatorship. Think the Obama-Iran deal where you know, we had no guarantees that they were cutting out their nuclear program. The last add on Trump being progressive is the Middle East peace deals that we've recently seen signed. Looking back at uh, our definitions for a moment, this one would fall under making use of or interested in new ideas. Remember John Kerry arrogantly pontificating at the Brookings Institute Forum? No peace deal without first satisfying the Palestinians, he said. I'll put a link uh, to the clip in the description box. Also, you know, John Kerry on that, he was wrong just as he was on his Vietnam service. We already have three deals signed uh, with reports by the Independent out of the UK, uh, putting another five possibly on the table, five more peace deals in the Middle East between Israel and the Middle East, uh, Middle Eastern countries. Seems like the definition of advancing a cause to me. I don't know that I ever had a thought that in my lifetime, Israel would be at peace with its neighbors. Trump brought this together by bucking conventional wisdom. That conventional wisdom saying that there had to be a state for Palestine before anybody would reach a deal with Israel. Really, Palestine didn't want to come to the table. We'll go to those that want to 
and maybe they'll come along, maybe they won't. What we see here is thinking differently and then acting with that different approach. Now let's contrast this with the left for a moment. Their actions and agendas are anything but progressive and certainly do not move us forward. I came across this article from the Post Millennial. It's titled, Seattle Libraries Implement Racial Segregation in the Name of Social Justice. Really taking those lessons from Chapistan and applying them to everyday life, eh, Seattle? The King County Library is holding separate but equal training sessions for their employees. This is on top of the critical race theory being taught in trainings for public employees, as well as being filtered down to their schools. All this is doing is assuring us nothing more than a future of more Antifa savages emanating from the Puget Sound area. Seattle is doing its best to push themselves back to the Civil War era, embracing these types of trainings and segregating of, of people. It's only serving to enable victimhood and does more to oppress people of all walks of life. At the end of the day, we are all free, liberty-loving Americans. That's what we should identify as. We shouldn't identify as Black, White, Hispanic, African-American, Canadian-American, whatever. We're all liberty-loving Americans who do not need to be distinguished by any of our outward characteristics. The kicker in all of this? Seattle is in King County, which is named after, you guessed it, Martin Luther King Jr. One more quick example of the regressive left. They want to destroy our life through various hoaxes. The big one in particular, one that we haven't actually heard a ton of during this uh, presidential campaign season is climate change. Now, is our climate changing? Yes. Has our climate always changed on this planet? Yes. Do I want to do all I can as a conservative to preserve the planet? Well, yes. No one wants to live uh, or turn the earth into a toxic waste dump. I think we all want to do our part, whether it be recycling, whether it be reducing emissions. I think, you know, that in particular has health benefits. I think at times what we end up doing is we give ourselves too much credit in terms of of how much effect we can have on, on the climate. Climate change really isn't as big of a threat as it's made out to be. Seas are rising. Well, if they are, why is Obama and, and other liberal elites buying seaside mansions? You would think if the seas are rising in a few years, it's going to come up and and swallow up that seaside mansion. Extreme weather is causing all the fires and killing animals. ALC says we're going to be gone in 12 years. Really, just like the coming ice age people were worried about in the 70s, we're still here. The fact is that there's no credible science outfit out there saying climate change is going to cause the collapse of civilization, the collapse of the planet. Also fact is weather isn't getting more extreme. Looking at drought data from the EPA, a government entity, so that should really be the Bible to the left. It's, it's EPA data. They're all about the big government here. 
it shows that there's no meaningful increase from 1900 to 2016 in droughts. 116 years worth of data, no discernible increase. The same holds true for tornadoes. If we look at 2014, we actually had less tornadoes then than in 1954, a span of 60 years. Again, another great time span, plenty of data, gives you a good sample there. 2017 was an active hurricane season. 2020 has been a very active uh, hurricane season for that matter. But, you know, 2017 came on the heels of several years of lower than normal activity. And lastly, snowfall. Since being in the upper Midwest, we are getting to winter. The flakes were flying yesterday. I'll mention the snowfall as well. According to EPA data, the snowfall trend hasn't changed in decades either. Part of the justification for alarmism has been the rising costs, which again, if you think about it, are going to go up every year from inflation anyway. Yet despite all the facts to the contrary, climate alarmists want green new deals that will result in less efficient means of electricity generation, less efficient means of transportation. You can only go so far on a charged battery in your Tesla. How are you going to fly an airplane? Uh, that thing would be loaded down with batteries if you got rid of jet fuel. Would it even take off at that point from the weight? Maybe, maybe not. It certainly couldn't carry as many people. So let's think about this for a second. If we want to go to renewable energy, let's call it, the footprint of that renewable energy will be greater than a gas-fired or nuclear power plant to generate the same amount of electricity. So you'd have a, the, the footprint of the plants are going to be a lot smaller than that solar array or wind farm. Not only that, if, if you look at it, the solar arrays and wind farms, are, wind farms are more harmful to the environment because they are, not only do they, uh, are, are they produced by coal or natural gas electricity, but you're destroying a lot of habitat and setting them up. As solar arrays, you see some of the pictures, they're just, you know, huge. And, and they're not even coming close to uh, generating the electricity of a of a gas fired or coal or nuclear power plant. Same with the you know the wind farms you see at, at points, just numerous windmills. But there's the the efficiency of electricity generation just isn't there. And and then you read about the stories about all the the birds and bats and everything else those things are killing. So we're solving one problem maybe in terms of of cutting emissions, but we're creating three, four others. The Green New Deal will put us back years in terms of progress as a society, as the costs will skyrocket uh, in terms of electricity generation, um, you know, cars, et cetera, that are, that are green energy. People will look to alternatives that may pollute more just to keep the lights on in their house and transport themselves. People are, are going to find a way around things. Um, you know, we're, we're Americans, we're problem solvers. 
if I can't uh, efficiently generate electricity or heat for my house, I'm going to find a way and, and likely it's going to pollute more. We're going to burn more wood. You're going to do, you know, something else. You know, I often wonder, you know, kind of with that idea, how Californians are going to charge their electric cars when there are consistent blackouts. That's that's the one model we have right now, and it is failing miserably. Tons of rolling blackouts, and they're trying to go to all, all electric cars by 2035, I think Gavin Newsom wants. Uh, there's no way they're going to be able to charge them all. To touch on tomorrow's election, first I want to say, um, especially if you're in an already inflamed uh, metro area where there's been tons of protests, tons of unrest, be prepared. I recommend listening to the Federalist Forum podcast from last Wednesday. Tom goes into everything you need to do uh, to prepare and stay safe in the unrest that is inevitably coming uh, I would tend to agree with him. I, I think that there's going to be, no matter what happens to tomorrow, there's going to be unrest. I believe that if Trump's reelected, the left will continue their temper tantrum that they've had all year, really for the last four years. We will see major unrest across the country. Those in the cities will need to be prepared to weather this. I do think that Trump will end it quickly, however, as he will... Uh, at that point, be unencumbered politically. He won't have to worry about getting reelected for a second term. He won't have to worry about if he's feeding the narrative that he's a tyrant. He can put down these insurrections quickly and not give a second thought to it. I think we'll find if Trump's reelected and if there is violence and he chooses to go down the path of the Insurrection Act, uh, it'll end quickly. A lot of these... uh, Rioters are kids that were in mom and dad's basement and sounded fun to get paid to go out and smash stuff and peacefully protest. I think, you know, once uh, real life starts hitting them and a few more of them start getting snatched up into federal vans by federal agents, they'll back down and go back home. I think it really... You know, I would hope it would cause them to reevaluate their life decisions and where they're at in life and maybe spur them to go and learn a trade or some other useful skill. I have a feeling a lot of these are college-educated folks, and uh, those college degrees really aren't anything that uh, is in demand in the marketplace as far as job prospects go. If Biden wins, we need to buckle in and be ready to fight for our liberty. I believe the violence ratchets up even more, contrary to him saying he would end it. I'd see it spilling into the suburbs and rural areas to try and drive fear and subjugation to the government. The Democrats have turned into the party of control. Their only aim is power, and and unquestioned power at that. And I think they've proven through this election season what their uh, intentions really are. And it's really in their inactions and failure to denounce Antifa, to denounce the violence that we've seen in our cities. And that makes them complicit. To my knowledge, not even the sagging polls from the rioting earlier in the campaign season was enough to get them to denounce Antifa. It just seems to seem to cause the lamestream media to pull back in their coverage. We weren't hearing about it as much anymore because 
the media is covering for the Democrats. Finally, on a positive note, and something to start your week out uh, right, a story of uh, some good in the world. This story happens to be close to my heart. I have a child with special needs. There's a family farm outside Austin, Texas, that is connecting special needs children to special needs animals. It's called Safe in Austin. They take and rescue animals, rehab and rehome the ones they can, and they provide a home for the rest, the ones that uh, they can't find a home for. They have all manner of animals, dogs, cows, pigs, goats, cats, and you know anything you'd find on a farm. And what they do is they pair up children who come to the farm with a therapy animal. So they, they even have animals that are blind, that can't walk, and they, they take those and they pair them up with kids that are might be blind or can't walk or, um, you know, something like that. So uh, really what I find the best part of this is, is they don't charge for anyone to, to come to the farm for healing. Uh, I think this is huge for parents of special needs kids especially if they're paying for therapy out of pocket. I can speak from experience that uh, the therapy isn't cheap. We were fortunate enough to have uh, uh, be able to get insurance to cover it. Many are not. Many insurance plans don't cover it. So I think it's huge to have this as an outlet for um, special needs families to go to and, and have a, a therapy session uh, for their kids. So that concludes my show for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, I'd appreciate it if you shared it with your friends and family, as well as subscribe to my podcast. I also appreciate feedback and dialogue. Uh, you can email me at livingwithliberty at usa.com. Uh, follow me at my social media home on Parlor. Uh, my handle's at livingwithliberty. Liberty isn't a given. We must continue to fight and protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.